the story of Bilam, in a sense, is sort of unique in the entire Torah in the fact that there is no Jew that really witnessed the story. There are no Jewish witnesses to these events. Whereas the rest of the rest of the Torah seems to be a record, if you will, of what happened to the Bnei Yisrael in the wilderness. All of this took place out of eyesight, not of earshot of the Jewish people. I mean, this is what was going on in the mind of Bilam, the mind of Bolak, the communications between the two, what Bolak wanted, what Bilam did. The Jews were totally oblivious, were totally oblivious to the events that transpired in the Parsha. Not the curses, not the blessings, not the attempts. Yet, because this is a good indication of the fact that the Torah being that it was given to Moshe Rabbeinu by HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so this was given to him as well, just like any other event that transpired. And there's therefore no difference. In fact, I guess it's sort of, you know, we once um, mentioned Hashem kol goyim shabchu kol ha'unim the nations of the world should praise Hashem because his, because Hashem's mercy and kindness is so great over the Jewish people. So he pointed out, many people say, what does it mean the nations should praise Hashem for His kindness to us? Because very often Jews themselves are not aware of Hashem's kindness to them. It's the Goyim that know through their plots and their... Um, things that blow up and their conspiracies against the Jews that don't work out, who would have known that Stalin planned on killing all the Jews? I mean, we accidentally found out. So look what happens behind the scenes, how Hashem protects us. The truth of the matter is, it's certainly a greater miracle that God does for each and every one of us to keep us healthy than He does when He helps us regain our health. I mean, do you know all those little things that are floating around in your body right now that could and should and would make you ill and don't? So you have to thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the things that He does that maintain our health. And it's a greater miracle because you have a huge body with a, with a large potential for illness. And sort of like... Um, I remember who over here remembers the cartoons from when they, from their youth. Maybe they didn't have cartoons in your youth. They didn't mind. Mr. Magoo, right? Huh? Okay, you guys remember, good. And obliviously walking through everything and doing the most dangerous things. But he always... Met, what? Unscathed. Unscathed. That's the greatest miracle, a bigger miracle than anything else. You ever watch little babies and little toddlers falling and almost knocking their heads against the corner of a glass table? Happens all the time. So that's, that's even a bigger miracle. That's really the miracle of Bilam. And in a sense, Chazal bring down, we'll learn one of these days, about the fact that Bilam was supposed to be recited by Jews every single day. Like Shema but they didn't incorporate it. And the reasons for it, I don't want to get into it right now, why? But conceptually, the story of Bilam is, um, is a very powerful one. 
Furthermore, even the prophecies of Bilam, the oratory, the, the, the poetic aspects of it, the, the fact that it's prophecies about the future of the Jewish people, it's almost a, a kind of a cosmic blueprint over all of what history is supposed to encompass. It's all contained here. All without, without, without any Jew being there to witness, to hear it. Bilam himself presents us with, with a kind of an enigma. On the one hand, you see the power and the beauty of the prophecies of Bilam, that a person like that was able to, to reach such heights. Yet at the same time, we know what utter depravity Bilam, Bilam was. I mean, he was anxious to curse the Jews. Clearly from the Parsha, he was anxious to curse the Jews. Strangers, he didn't know, but he didn't care. Basically, he was a hitman. But a, but a, but a pretty bad hitman when you think about it. Because his curses, uh -huh. because his curses were such that were considered to be very effective, the means on entire people, innocent men, women, and children. It's like Bilam holding his finger on the nuclear button, saying, if you pay me enough, I'll press it. When you think about it, think about the, the immorality and the depravity of Bilam. I suppose the reason why most modern ears don't hear it that way is people think, what's a curse? Eh, it's ineffective anyway. It's all superstition. First of all, what if it works? Which apparently in Bilam's case it did. And second of all, what if it didn't work, but they think it works? It's the same thing. People believe it works, and they're still willing to do it. So it's like pressing the nuclear button and be willing to, to do it for money. You know, there was an experiment made a number of years back. Not the one with the rats, but the one with people. To see to what extent you know, we know about uh, Hitler and the Nazis and the Germans. To what extent are people willing to just be, submit to the power of authority and harm others? So what they did was they made an experiment whereby they asked for volunteers to, they were going to pay them to, and they told them that the purpose of this is to have volunteers to see what the threshold of human pain is by electrical shock. And they were supposed to increase the dose of electricity by which someone was going to be um, shocked. And they'd see the other person, you know, in pain. Of course, the whole thing was really a fake. The other person wasn't really, it was like a kind of a fake button. And after a while, the person starts screaming, please don't do it anymore, I don't want it. And the person in charge would insist, no, you got to continue. We're not going to kill him, it's only going to be, it's part of an experiment, it's all voluntary. And it was interesting how far people really went to inflict pain on somebody else only at the behest of someone else because they said, no, you got to do it because you committed yourself. Even though they're not under the threat of any kind of you know, punishment nowadays. So the whole thing was really a fake. But nevertheless, people were willing to, to do this. So it's amazing how far a human, human being could sink so on the one hand we have Bilam 
reaching the heights of oratory skills and prophecy equal in certain respects at least if not in other respects but as the Sifri says in Zos HaBrocha where it says Lokom Kamosha, no one ever arose like Moshe but that was only in, amongst the Jews, amongst the nations Bilam was his equal in many ways Bilam was Moshe's equal yet a person to be so depraved to be able to to be willing to uproot an entire nation just for money and not only that but to use his prophecy to use his ability to come close to Hashem in a totally negative way such utter degeneracy the greed of Bilam not only that but then you add to it his his yearning to do it where it's no longer a mercenary thing it's no longer he's willing to kill men, women and children merely to be paid for it but he was anxious to do it he got up, he saddled his own donkey and he's and he's ready to go to do what? to do something wicked, to do something evil to destroy, to kill it's utter depravity we know from the advice that Bilam recommends to Moab to ensnare and to entice the Jews and that was all gratuitous it wasn't necessary to give that advice that I got a scheme and of course the, it's like the the Roshak test you know, it shows what's on your mind the fact that Bilam comes up with this kind of advice we'll get to that a little bit later shows again his level of degeneracy Chazal of course take it even a step further and they say that Bilam was actually guilty of well of having relations with his own with his own animal with his own donkey, yes. So what's it to be Bilam to the Jews as Jews are to like Amalek? You know, to try and like money is the big thing, to Jews miss is the big thing. So Jews kill Amalek like, for Sarmitz and Bilam wants to kill Jews for, for money. There is no question that a person who does anything with Shema for its own sake, with self-sacrifice, there are parallels. Pure evil and poor pure goodness do have do have certain parallels in fact Bullock is rewarded for the zeal and the lishma that he had in trying to kill the Jews it made some sort of an impact some sort of a mark in fact one of the things that they explain as to why a miracle was actually necessary to prevent Bilam from cursing the Jews is because pure devotion whether to good or to bad has certain parallels so in a way we do say, as Bill himself says, Rash is Goyim Amalek. The Jews are called Rashis, and Amalek is called Rashis. So in a kind of a strange way, what you're saying is true that what's the difference between the Jews and Amalek? Adolf Hitler felt the same way. That's really what the essence of his philosophy is. We and the Jews are enemies to the death. And his war was primarily against the Jews. Right? A book by, what's her name, Lucy Davidowitz, War Against the Jews, really represents this idea. But that's only if you're living in a relativistic world where you say it's not for us to judge what's good and bad. And therefore, if you just deal with zeal and devotion and fundamentalism, they're all the same. But you know what? There are differences. The truth of the matter is, 
One could be pure good, and the other could be pure evil, even though they may look alike. The fact is that the difference between the Jews to Amalek is in many, many ways different. It's not for us to go into right now, but um, it's not. It's it's really something that a person approaches with a reluctance to do it on his own, but rather you're doing it as a command of Hashem. As a command of Hashem, because of your devotion to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is the only reason why you would do it with the same kind of feeling. But it's not because the Midos that are involved in killing are done with zeal and, and devotion. Jews don't do that. But we'll have to say that for next week. That's, that's the Pinchas aspect of this. That's the Pinchas part. We're not going to go into that right now, yes? What you mentioned about the doctor reminds me of Abraham with such zeal saddling up. So the Torah says that. That's, again, the same point. It says over there, the Gemara brings it down. Chazal say that when Bilam saddled his donkey, so Hashem said to him, Russia, wicked one, Avram had preceded you. In page 396, Rashi brings down, Pasik Chafal, by Shlishi, Vayokom Bilam Bilam arose in the morning by Boker, and he saddles his own donkey. So, um, Rashi, three lines from the bottom of the first column, we see how hatred, how hatred blurs the line, meaning the line of etiquette, that this is considered, the etiquette was that a person of nobility doesn't change his own oil nowadays, it would be the equivalent of changing your own tires or doing your own oil. So you're so anxious to leave that you'll change the oil yourself. Because when you have that zeal, you're going to do it, you're going to do it on your own. So, um, the fact that Bilam does it, we see how hatred perverts the line. Likewise, we see how love does the same thing. Omar HaKadosh Baruch Hu Rosha, wicked one, Kvar Avram Aviyem, Shenemar Vayashkem Avram Baboker, the exact same words are used. Vayach Voshes Chamoro, the exact same words. So we see that the Torah uses the same terminology to describe Bilam's zeal in going against Hashem to Avram's zeal in fulfilling the commands of Hashem. Both of them, we find how this over, you know, the, 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 this complete zeal was able to blur the boundaries and the lines of proper etiquette behavior. <coughs> the point is that Avram and Bilam are considered in many ways to be parallels of each other. For that reason, if you look, just since you brought up the subject, you want to give me that sitter over there for a second? This, this parallel that we find that you're bringing out, we see again how the Torah contrasts Avram's zeal to, to uh, Bilam's. Actually, it's a mission in Pirkei Avos, Pirkei. If you have these three character traits, whom we tell me of, you're from the disciples, shall Avram Avinu of Avram. And if you have three other things, whom we tell me of, shall Bilam Horosha of Bilam. 
and the Gemara describes, or rather the Mishnah contrasts and describes the difference between the Talmidim of Avram and the Talmidim of Bilam. Interesting. You know, it's almost as if, I remember I once heard actually from, from Rabbi Keller, my stepfather-in-law. He says, why does the Mishnah contrast the disciples of Bilam to the disciples of Avram? Why not just contrast Avram to Bilam? Look at the difference between Avram and Bilam. And the answer is... What? Maybe. Now you're talking about Rabbi Eloi. Yeah. But it's even more than that. Very often it's hard to make a distinction. Bilam was a prophet, a great person. What's the difference? He could overlook certain things, you know. Look at his disciples, though. Very often you cannot tell the difference between the teachers because they look almost identical, but you could see the results. You could see in the disciples. So therefore, yeah, sometimes a person could actually lose sight of what Bilaam is all about. They'll ask your question. So what's the difference between this guy and that guy? To a certain extent, obviously, there were similarities. And that's really what, the, what Rashi's highlighting over there. But there's a lesson in that. So why does Hashem have to tell Bilaam? Bilaam, I've already beat you to it. What's the importance? So many, many Mephoshim explain. Because devotion, dedication, leads to results. And therefore, if Bilam has such a desire and a devoted dedication to what he's doing, we could only counteract it by at least an equal zeal and dedication to the forces of good. Otherwise, evil will win. If you do your goodness lackadaisically, it's a tviya, it's a taina on the Jews that they're not doing things the right way. If Goyim do their job, if the enemies of the Jews, if wicked people, do their job with great zeal and desire, then it's a time on us for doing things callously, with, to do things with negligence. It's a time. So the only way you could counteract Bilam's desire and his dedication to curse is only by an equal devotion on the part of someone like Avram to do the will of God. That's what Rashi's pointing out over here. And that's really what the Torah is pointing out. Look at what Bilam did to punish the Jews, to harm the Jews, to injure the Jews. In Shemaim, that's, that's going to be considered a tviya. And the only way you're going to counteract that, did anybody do something of equal desire for goodness? If Goyim will get up early in the morning to, uh, to go to a ball game and wait in line, are there Jews that are willing to do that for Dafyomi? If you fill Madison Square Garden for some crazy concert, could you fill it up for Torah? If Goyim could do it, could Jews for their mitzvahs do an equal amount? So therefore, there is a contrast. And ultimately, Bilam and Avram are being compared. But what's the difference? The difference is look at the Talmudim, because sometimes you'll ask your question, Look at the results of death and destruction and look at the results of goodness. And look at the difference of the Midos between a Bilam and an Avram. So there's a difference.
But in any case, be it as it may, Dilam was a depraved individual, he was degenerate, yet his oratory was was tremendous. And his he wanted to utilize all of his gifts and his skills not to come close to Hashem. But like I said earlier, he was given a nuclear gift. He was given the gift of power, like like nuclear weapons. Look what he did with it. He wanted to kill and destroy. Actually, the Gemara says, why was it that Hashem gave Bilam prophecy? So the Goyim can't claim later on, had you have given us a Moshe, we would have been great. Hashem says, this is why I didn't give you a Moshe. Because you would have perverted it and used it destructively. I'm going to give you tools and weapons. What are you going to use it for? I'm going to give you nuclear power. Are you going to power cities with it? Or are you going to destroy cities with it? If you can't, if that's what you're going to do, you're better off without it. Tremendous lesson from Bilam that the gifts of Hashem, like the gifts of technology, are only good in people that are good. If people are bad, they pervert it, they use it in the worst possible way. But what you see furthermore, points out Chaim Shmulevitz, is the dichotomy that exists in one human being himself. That's an amazing thing. If you look at the bottom right, it brings down over there. We'll just read certain parts of it because I don't want to focus on this totally. So the parsha of Bilam teaches us a tremendous lesson in human nature. Tremendous lesson in human nature. And that is Titochein Ba'adam in the second line. You could have such a vast gap and difference of an un, almost uh, an infinitely deep difference between two aspects of the same personality in Bilam. That within him there was a kind of a there's a kind of a constant struggle of two forces that seem to be so at odds with each other from one extreme to the other. Sort of like light and darkness are simultaneously struggling in the same person. It's almost like Rivka, what she felt by where she felt that she had an internal struggle and not knowing that she was carrying twins one being a Yaakov and the other being an Esav she thought she has one person one child who's composed of the greatness of a Yaakov and the wickedness of an Esav constantly struggling and battling and that's what she was most concerned with Bilam seemed to have contained both aspects well, where's the struggle though? where? Where's the struggle? It's just basically the evil is there. Where's the good? No, okay, so maybe the struggle is, is not what I'm referring to as much as the fact that it's struggling with him. But the fact that he seems to have two such opposing forces that are of an opposite extreme. In other words, on the Michad Gisa, we know that Bilam knew his master, knew God. As it says, Viodea Das Elion, he was a prophet. He was able to achieve levels of prophecy 
parallel to Moshe. Lo kom novi od be Yisrael k'Moshe says the pasuk. Be Yisrael lo kom says the Sifri. Avol bumos olam kom umanu who is that Bilam? Yet at the other ex- extreme, we find somebody who is out to knock and break and destroy every possible gather, every possible fence of ethical moral behavior. And his own personal life is a degenerate life. Bilam himself lived a perverted lifestyle. And Bilam was willing to kill and destroy for money and possibly for the perverted pleasure of killing. And he wanted to destroy the almost in certain ways, again, like I mentioned the other day, how someone like Bill Clinton in order to save himself is willing to lower the moral standards of society and say that what I did is acceptable behavior, it's not adultery. Knowing that by saying that you are, whether it is or not, whether he denied, but ultimately he's willing to destroy, okay, in his case it's because he wants to save his his, uh, his own uh, political future, but he's willing to lower the moral fiber of society just for his own personal needs, not caring what happens to general morality. And Bilam, in order to get where he wants to go, is willing to lower the, to basically to advise the Moabites to make their own daughters Hefker, to prostitute their own daughters in order to ensnare and entice the Jews into sin. So he was a degenerate. And, right? And his own lifestyle was likewise perverted, as we know. We know that uh, Bilam was, the Gemorian of Zara says, that he lived with his own donkey. What we see from this, though, is that yes, this is possible. It's possible to coexist in one person, light and darkness. Good and evil could so coexist. We find, he brings down, that, what? Again, I'm not going to go into moral relatives, now you're saying what he's saying before. So from their vantage point, you know what? I don't have to worry about every single person's claim to the fact that what's the difference between you and someone else. The bottom line is the life cannot go on by being morally ambivalent throughout life. Yes, there is such a thing as good and there's such a thing as bad. And yes, Hitler thought that what he was doing was good and he's exterminating a race of people. It's like exterminating vermin, but so what? So I don't care what he thought, he's evil. That's it. I'm willing to pass judgment. We've been constantly brought up in the United States of America that the biggest sin is don't pass judgment. You have no right to pass judgment on someone else. I'm here to tell you, pass judgment. There is good and there is bad, and if it's going to call you a moral fundamentalist, so be it. There is such a thing as good and evil, and you could say it, and you could say this is bad, this is good, rather than going through life constantly saying, who am I to say, what can I say, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. If that's the way you're going to bring up your children, then you're going to have children that anything and everything goes. I mean, the only thing that's considered morally reprehensible nowadays is intolerance. This point. Because if you pass judgment, that's the only thing that people don't accept. You know what? I'm not interested in always hearing everybody always say, 
But the other guy's going to say the reverse. So what? So let him say it. So what? It's not going to tell me not to say it. The point is good and evil do coexist in a person. And he then just brings down as an aside, we find that a maidservant was able to see on the Yamsuf more than what Yechezkel ben Buzi saw. Yet, we find that she never rose above the level of a shifcha. After her prophetic insight, she went back, she was still a shifcha. The difference, of course, is, what do we see from this? That artificially given gifts are not going to work. If someone is going to put a CD-ROM and pass it through your mind, and you're going to go the easy route of achieving greatness and knowledge, you still missed it. You're nothing more than, well, you're really worse than a computer, because a computer has no desires. A computer has no moral codes. As a result, a computer is, is neutral. A person is never neutral. And if you give a person a gift, even the greatest of spiritual gifts, but you're still a shifcha, then that's all you're going to be. You're going to be a shifcha with a gift. If you're going to be, you know, an orman, they use an expression in Yiddish, an orman with gelt. You know, you're not a rich person. You're really a poor person with a lot of money. You know, your mentality, your, the, the way you live, you're, you, you give a homeless person a million dollars, so he's still mowing the lawn, he's still acting like a homeless guy with a lot of money. Spiritual gifts are the same way. Riches. If you give Bilam the greatest gift, of prophecy, you still got a bilam with the gift of prophecy. You give a shifcha insights more than Yechezkel, all you got is a shifcha with insights more than Yechezkel. So what made Yechezkel Yechezkel? Yechezkel made Yechezkel Yechezkel. He worked on himself. What made Moshe Moshe? Moshe did. There is no substitute for hard work, or what I always refer to as the Smith Barney method. Right? The good old-fashioned way of doing it. You have to earn it. You can't, you can't create children, you know, with attention spans of an MTV generation. But you're going to give them computer-generated images, and you're going to try to induce them constantly to learn and learn. And they know so much knowledge. The Gemara refers to it. It's like a donkey bearing a burden of books on its back. It's a chamor molay farm. It's like a person who's a donkey carrying a library in himself, but you're still a donkey. I mean, I'll give you an example of such a person. Let me illustrate it with a real live example of such a person. No, I'm looking, yeah, look at Simi. An example of such a person, for those that remember, Jimmy Carter. Okay? Smart guy. No, no, he knows a lot. Brilliant, probably one of the smartest presidents. He didn't have. It's like a donkey carrying a load of books. Reagan was not smart. Nowhere could he have been anywhere near Jimmy Carter. He was inherently a different person. There's no substitute for doing it the right way. So the lesson of Bilam is Hashem could gift you with the greatest gifts, but if you're a degenerate and a pervert, you are degenerate and a pervert with the greatest gifts. It's instead of having a knife, you have a gun. Instead of a gun, you have an Uzi. Instead of an Uzi, you have a howitzer. 
instead of a howitzer, your finger is on the nuclear button. And Bilam, with his mouth, was able to uproot and kill and destroy an entire people. What a dangerous gift to give to a pervert. But that's the lesson for the, for, for the world at large. Hashem had to miraculously save us from the effects of a Bilam. Okay. Enough right now of Bilam will return to him. Let's talk now about some other lessons from Bilam. Okay. Bilam Bilam says the following prophecy. Just want to dwell on one brief part of it. In one of the prophecies of Bilam, Bilam says Lo hibit oven biyakov v'lo roa omo biyisroel Hashem elokov imo usruas melech bo Yeah, correct. We say this in Rosh Hashanah. That's true. So it says Lo hibit oven biyakov Hashem sees no inequity amongst the Jews he doesn't look or scrutinize their sins. Nor does he see Omo by the Jews. What is Omo? What is Omo? So Rashi translates Omo as another expression for the word Avera. Sin. Again, it's a way of the Pasik saying Hashem doesn't scrutinize and look at the sins of the Jews for whatever reason that is however the word Omo means something else what does the word Omo mean? which means what in English? work more than work labor toil right? Amal Amalus to work hard Hashem doesn't see this toil amongst the Jews, this hard labor. Or it could be translated as fatigue. That's not a French word, that's an English word. What's fatigue? When you work hard, um, most of you, if you've been coming around the past week to the Daf Yomi, right? Hard work. You know what it is? You do it for 45 minutes and you feel drained. Do it for two hours, three hours, four hours. You really feel drained, right? Sometimes Erevin can give you a little bit of this feeling of Amal. And you feel huh, just tired. Zokt of them the Orachayim. You don't have the Orachayim there. I, I left it out somehow. Gam niskavin loimar. I'm, I'm calling to you the Orchaim. Shehat Sadikim, Hagam Shoisim Mitzvahs. Even when Sadikim do mitzvahs, the whole Eskom Batayra, their Oisik Batayra, what's Eisik Batayra is more than just learning Torah. It's your work on Torah, you're involved in Torah. Einom Margishim Sheyeshlam Amal. They don't feel the Amal, they don't feel the labor, the toil, the tiredness, the fatigue. As it says, They feel like the guy who is working, you know what it would be like. 
people on the Wall Street, they could be so involved and so busy, they, they can't even eat. Because the market's just moving. So can you imagine on a day, oh, Andy, maybe you've had such days, I don't know, you don't. But if you'd be a Wall Street broker, and the market is going up and up 100, 200 points, and you're buying and selling, and you're making millions, you come home drained, but you're on a high. You didn't feel it. You didn't even feel the pressure because you're wheeling and dealing and it's great. So tzaddikim, ko'odom ha'marviach, like a person making tremendous profit, u'ko'odom ha'mishtasheya b'shashuim, like a person who's doing all kinds of pleasurable things, l'roiv cheshkom batayra, because of their great love and desire for Torah, they feel no amal. Says the Archaim HaKadosh, a beautiful pshat. Hashem sees amongst tzaddikim, there isn't any amal there. They're working so hard in Torah, but there is no fatigue, there is no amal. There is no toil. That's what? That's what the Archaim says, one pshat in Lairo Omol Yisrael. He, see, uh, he, see he sees that the, that's the, the that's the, what the can behave like. Therefore, maybe one could take it, and Hashem therefore responds and reciprocates by not scrutinizing their their indiscretions either. But let, let, I want to focus a little bit on this on this concept. So he says a beautiful shot here. It says like this. Bilam was pointing out the virtue of Klal Yisrael that even though they're miyageya that they toil and they struggle in Tyrem, einam choshim ayefus They don't feel the fatigue and the tiredness. Says the Sefer Darkei Musar, he brings down the fascinating story, the Gemara above Metziyadav Peidalot, famous story. We know Rabbi Yechanan, we've had Rabbi Yechanan throughout the Gemara. By now, anybody that's been learning the daf, you're only on your third Mesechta, but you see how Rabbi Yochanan permeates the entire Torah. First of the generations of the Amoroim, disciple of Rabbi Yudha and the greats. Rabbi Yechanan's brother-in-law was Reish Lokish. Reish Lokish was probably only a couple of years younger than Rabbi Yechanan. And we've had indications that Reish Lakish probably started off his life raised in his early youth at least in a yeshiva. He learned as a disciple. But apparently at one point he must have gone off the derech. And he became a highwayman. And he became actually a gladiator. Gumar describes how he went to gladiator school and he basically knocked off the heads of all the gladiators. And one day, Rabbi Yochanan was bathing in the Jordan River and Reish Lokish sees Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan was this radiantly beautiful person, Gemara and Brochus, for those that remember. The beauty of Rabbi Yochanan, he was radiant, and Rish Lokish sees this radiantly beautiful person and he jumps into the water 
jumps across the Jordan, a leap. Certain places you can see the Yarin there enough. And he sees the beauty of Rabbi Yochanan discovering that he's a man, not a woman. And he says, your beauty is for women. However, one understands that phrase. And Rabbi Yochanan responds to him, and your strength belongs in Torah. Your strength, you could leap across the Jordan. And um, Rabbi Yochanan says, if you promise to devote your life to Torah, I'll let you marry my sister, who's even more beautiful than I. Says Reish Lakish, you got a deal. And Reish Lakish, the rest of his life, learned Torah. And maybe one could even actually view Reish Lakish as the prime example of a Balchuva who devotes his life to learning. And, and again, we find throughout the Gemara, Reish Lakish, and his statements. But the Gemara, in this story, mentions one little fascinating side light to this. It says that when Rabbi Yechanan when Rish Lakish sees Rabbi Yechanan at the seashore of the, at the shore of the of the Yarday, and he wanted to get to him, so he jumps all the way across one side of the Yarday to the other to get to Rabbi Yechanan. He's like in his desire to see him, and upon his commitment to Torah, he tries to jump back, and he can't make it. He couldn't make it back to the other side. He couldn't get back. So the Gemara says, why is that? So the Gemara says, we see from here that Torah weakens a person. Torah weakens a person. How much Torah did Reish Lakish learn to become weak? The commitment already to Torah was enough to physically weaken him. Right? The, phys- the commitment to Torah learning, it's already enough to physically weaken Reish Lakish. That's the general understanding of this Gemara. In other words, because Torah study is draining, and even a commitment to Torah study is going to be physically draining, so you're going to be shvachened a little bit physically. Comes the Sefer, Darke Musr, and he says a beautiful shot in this idea different pshat whole different pshat Vatvarm Tzrichem Bir third paragraph in Reish Lokash Hoyim Iskash Adalga Ayyad Nachash Shikvar Hechelask B'Torah Hoyim Okam Lomash Tash Shikarach Mirav Limut he's bothered with the question had Reish Lokash began learning one could say that it drained you but here he hasn't learned yet he only accepted upon himself the yoke of learning. Why did this weaken him? What happened during this short period of time that the mere commitment to learn should physically weaken him? Why? Why should that be? So he says a different pshat. Listen to his pshat. Venera. So he says a different pshat, beautiful pshat. Say for Darke Musar. To say that there was a physical change that occurred by the mere commitment can't be. To say that you learn and you learn, or you begin learning, it's a strain. So the strain maybe physically weakens you. But the mere commitment to learn, to say that it's physically weakened, 
That's not pshat. So what then? What he lacked, it no longer meant that much to him. It wasn't the physical weakening. It's that everybody given enough adrenaline can do whatever. But if you lack the adrenaline, if you lack the oomph and the desire to do it, something else means much more to you now, then automatically you're physically weakened. Not that your muscles are any different, but you're no longer set to do it. You know, you hypnotize a person and you tell him you're stiff as a board and you put his feet on one chair and his head on the other, he'll feel stiff as a board. And you could put two people on top of him and they'll stand on him and they'll be able to stand. So what happened? There's a physical change that occurred under hypnosis. His mind is now focused. This is the command or this is the, that's not called command, the suggestion. The reality. No, I'm saying, but it's the suggestion which impacts him so strongly that his body becomes tensed up like that. To the rest of us, it's just not important enough. It's just not important enough to be so focused. That focus, Rebbe Chaim says a beautiful pshat. I think he maybe says this or even over here. But he says when the Torah says that miraculously, Paro was able to stretch out her arm and reach the baby. He says it wasn't a miraculous thing that her arm actually extended. She wanted it so badly, so much, that it was nearly miraculous from the vantage point of an observer. But to her, she wanted it. When Yaakov was able to roll away the stone that nobody else was, that the shepherds weren't able to, he saw Rachel, and she inspired him so much it's called Yichud HaKoychus, the gathering of all of your forces in total concentration. Albert Einstein's son was once asked, what was the genius of his father? And he said that my father never gave up on a problem. He would attack it again and again till he got it. Most of us become drained. If you work on a hard Gemara or on a hard Tysus, and it doesn't go once, twice, three times, you're exhausted. You're mentally exhausted. To be able to again and again do it requires tremendous concentration, focus, but you'll only do it if it means a lot. Shlokish, when he was a highwayman, his whole life was around jumping from one side of the yard to the other. That's what meant him. You see these guys walking down the street with tattoos on their arms and all over their body. I don't even know how they could do it, but you know what? It means enough to them so they get these tattoos. But their whole life is around bodybuilding and they can do all kinds of things. You know what, to me it doesn't mean that much. But as soon as they would lose the desire to do it, they would also lose it physically. Are they physically weakened? Something else just means so much more to them now. What was previously the most important thing is now of secondary importance. Something else gain primacy in their eyes. Ah, once something else gains primacy and this becomes secondary, you lose the strength. It's a beautiful pshat, because it's so true. The mere commitment of Reish Lakish to Torah didn't necessarily physically weaken him, but it was sufficient to now it doesn't mean that much. And he tried jumping over 
but his mind is already on his new commitment. His mind is already somewhere else. It doesn't mean that much to make it across the Yardin. So he can't. So he can't make it across the Yardin because it doesn't mean that much to you anymore. You've lost it. You know, music was your big thing. And you know what? I've lost it. I want you lose it. You don't have it. Physically, a physical change, a chemical change, an emotional, a mental one, psychological one. Therefore, he says, what he was lacking was that rotzain. Once he was macabre on himself to learn Torah, it no longer meant as much to jump across the Yardin. And as a result, he couldn't. This is the rule. This is the principle. If it doesn't mean enough to you, you won't do it. Even if you physically can, you have to really mean it. And this is the reverse also. Something that a person finds very meaningful in life, to you it's so important, and you desire it greatly, it's, it's everything to you. You'll find the power to do it. You'll make it. If you put your mind to it, because it means a lot to you, you'll have the abilities and the power to do it. The Kotzker says a beautiful word. We all know the famous story. Ton of the Be'eliyahu. Must have said it over many, many times. Not recently, though. So those that are recent don't have to know it. And those that are old and forgot. But most of you probably remember the Ton of the Be'eliyahu. Elyon Novi was walking down the stream and he met a fisherman. And the fisherman was an ignorant person. And he asked the fisherman, My son, why is it that you don't learn Torah? And the fisherman responds, Oh, Rebbe, I got a lot of answers on that. When God's going to ask you why I don't learn Torah, this stuff is difficult. And my head isn't for it. Accomplished the cup. What could I do? God, you made me a simpleton. You didn't give me the head for learning. So Navi, and he asked him, My son, what is your what is what is your livelihood? It's my livelihood. I'm a fish catcher. No nowadays as a fisherman. I catch fish. How do I catch fish? He asked him. I sew nets, I put into the water. And I catch the fish. Ah, Hashem gave you the brains to catch fish. But for Torah, you think He didn't give you the brains? If He gave you the brains for fish catching, you have the brains to learn Torah. Certainly there's enough in Torah that you'll be able to find your, your mark in it. And the fisherman began to cry. And Eliyahu says, listen, everybody uses a similar kind of excuse. Why don't you? I can't. It's not for me. But everybody could do it. They just use it as an excuse. Affect the Kotzke Rebbe. So who, was he right? Did, did he talk have the brains or didn't he have the brains? What's the truth? I mean, was it just an excuse that he gave? Or was it true? Said the Kotzke, no, the fisherman was right. The fisherman did not have the brains for learning Torah. 
Elianovi was pointing something else out to him. He said, so what do you do for a living? What do I do for a living? Fisherman. You have the brains for that? <laughs> what kind of question? Do I have a choice? Do you have a choice? How do you earn a living? How do you bring home bread? I don't have, I don't have the brains. I mean, what's the, it's not a question. You got to do it. You don't have a choice. Okay, nowadays you don't have to talk. People go on welfare and say, I can't. I can't. I'm incompetent. But if there's no welfare and you got to fend for yourself, you will find a way to do it. If it means enough to you, you'll do it. The point that Elianovi was pointing out to him is that you're not viewing Torah like you're viewing a livelihood. What's your livelihood? Ah, my livelihood. That's a different story. Says, your problem is that you're not viewing Torah like a livelihood. Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, we learned the Gemara and Brachas. Papas Ben Yehuda tells him, why are you teaching Torah? Why are you teaching Torah publicly? Don't you know the dangers that you're endangering yourself? Says Rabbi Akiva, you're right. Do I have a choice? And he gives him the example of the fox and the fish. And the fox is telling the fish, you know, this fisherman that we just talked about is going around catching fish. Come on dry land and avoid the fisherman. He says, foolish fox, we don't have a choice. We're living in the water. This is our element. Dangerous or not, we don't have a choice. This is what we got to do. We can't go out of our element. Said Rabbi Akiva, I don't have the choice to decide. Yeah, dangerous, not. Torah is our element. We're like a fish in water. And we need Torah to breathe. It's air. And the Medrash points out how when rain falls, fish swim to the surface because they want the new water. Why do they want new water? They got plenty of water, but water is their life. Water to them is like fresh air to us. And if you could breathe some fresh air, you gravitate to it. There's enough air, but you know what? You'd rather go outside and breathe the fresh air. It's enjoyable, it's gishmak, because you need it. If you need it, it becomes gishmak. If you need the air to live on, fresh air is gishmak. And you can't get enough of it. And you want more and more, and you don't sicken of it, and you don't tire of it. It's great. And fish will swim to new water, because it's fresh water. It's gishmak to them, because water is their element. Says Rabbi Akiva, if water is our element, then we can't question, let me go on dry land to avoid the fishermen. This is life. Your problem is that you're not viewing it that way. But if you view it that way, that's why Rabbi Akiva does it. So Rabbi Akiva does it for that reason. The fisherman was told by Eliyahu Anavi, whether you have brains or not, you don't question your livelihood, because you got to do it, so of course you're going to do it. And what you're doing, you'll then enjoy same thing is going to be true with Torah. If you view Torah as a necessity, as water, as air, then you're not going to question whether you could do it or not. You do it. And furthermore, you'll enjoy it. Both. Not only will you do it because you have to, you don't question it, but you'll enjoy it. And it won't tire you. Something that's your very life, you not only do because you have to, but you will enjoy it as well. So therefore, says the Kotzke, the fisherman was right. He didn't have the brains for Torah, but so what? So what? That's what Eliyahu Novi's rebuke was. 
Therefore, you have the same thing over here. If it means all the world to you to jump, jump across the Jordan, you'll jump across the Jordan. But now that something superseded that, he no longer had it. By losing even a little bit of interest in it, not complete interest, let's say, but even a little bit of interest is already enough to make it that he can't jump across. If a person wants it, you can do it, you'll have the strength and the power to do it. Even if your nature is weak. If it's gishmak for you, if you need it, and as a result you desire it greatly, you yearn for it, you'll have the power. Even when you're weak, if you desire it, gives you kaychas. He brings down here an interesting story. Reb Zalmullah. was the brother of Reb Chaim Volozhner, disciple of the Vilna Gaon. He needed a safer, and the safer was behind a big bookcase, a heavy bookcase. Usually three people had to move such a bookcase. Reb was so engrossed in his learning, he needed the safer so badly, he just moved it. He's a weak person. And you're talking about a, a shvachinka. How can he do what three people can't do? He just lost sight of everything else. He just needed it so badly. Where is it that Yeshiva Light could learn so long and Talmidei Chachom could spend so much of their day and the night without sleeping? Are they stronger? Do they have a different constitution? Certainly not. If anything, they're weaker. So where do they get it from? How do they stay up at night? How does the Vilna Gain learn 22 hours a day and sleep only 2 hours a night? Where does it come from? So we think Vilna Gain was a Malach. The Vilna Gain was a Malach. Who are we to the Vilna Gain? If we could only be a Malach like the Vilna Gain, we would also learn 22 hours a day. That's a mistaken... That's not true. The Vilna Gain wasn't a Malach, a different person, a superhuman being. And that's why he learned 22 hours a day? It's because Tim Torah was so dear and so precious that that's why he learned 22 hours a day. That's why he became a Malach. He wasn't a different person, therefore he could do it. And if we'd be like that, we'd also do it. No, he was like you and I. But he wanted it so badly and he did it. And that's what made him a Malach. He was better than us. Not different than us. He was us, but better. And therefore, we can't use the excuse. Ah, the Vilna Gain, Felinovi comes to us. Vilna Gain, what's Vilna Gain? Me, Vilna Gain, Vilna Gain. What's the expression they say? Vilna, and you'll be a Gain. That's Vilna Gain. Vilna, will it, and you'll be a Gain. That's all it is. The Vilna Gain's Gainess was from Vilna. That's what it was, that's it. That's why he could learn 22 hours a day. And we can't. Not because he was different. We have no excuse. No excuse whatsoever. We just don't have the will 
the same way he had the will. We lack the Zilna. That's why we're not a Goyim. That's why we're not a Goyim. The reason why you're not a Goyim is because you're not a Vilna. Where do you get the Vilna? What? Where do you get the Vilna? You. Where do you get it? Everybody wants the short answer. Everybody wants to go to sleep at night, play something in the background, a subliminal something or other, and wake up in the morning with all the knowledge, or with all the desire, or with all the midas. You're a shivcha. You're an orman mitgelt. Where do you get it? You're an orman mitgelt. You're a shivcha with nevuah. You're a dilam with prophecy. Uh-uh, you got to work on it. If you're not going to struggle and work on it, then you're not going to get it. You'll remain at most a bilam with, at worst I should say, a bilam with his finger on the nuclear button or a shivcha with a divine gift or an orman mit gelt. There's no shortcuts. It's you. Where do you get it? Look in the mirror. That's where you get it. And this is Reb Chaim Shemulevitz's point that Paro's daughter wants the baby badly enough. She gets it. Yaakov Avinu was so overcome to do it, he did it. Yichud Focus and concentration. And it comes from what? From a desire. And the desire comes from a recognition. And the recognition is that it's life itself that is that important. It's like fish in water, and therefore becomes fresh air. So not only can you do it, but you want to do it. Not only do you want to do it, but you won't be tired from it. Not only won't you be tired from it, but you actually enjoy it. For that reason, people that tire from learning, you could take a big burly truck driver and put him in front of a Gemara, Ervin, and say, okay, let's learn three dafim today with Tysus. How are we going to do it? Well, if a daf takes one hour or two hours, so spend about eight, nine hours. I mean, you, you put in 12 hours. You ever see these schleppers? I, by me, I think that's the most amazing thing. The schleppers, the, the people that carry the stuff, the movers, I look at them and I marvel at it. And some of them are thin guys too. But they take, you know, I remember when I had to pack up to leave Lakewood and it took me about two weeks of packing up my box of farm and the other stuff with like 200 things. And I said, and these guys, you know, like, I was exhausted after moving one box. And these guys, oh, they take four or five, and they walk up three flights of stairs, and then they come down, take another three, four, and they walk up. I don't know how they do it. I remember I had a tree in my backyard that the phone company in Detroit only cut down part of the tree because of the phone wires. So I had to do the rest. It became a three-month summer project with an axe to slowly but surely chop down the tree. I, I, I got a new recognition and appreciation of what it means to be a lumberjack. I mean, these guys that try to chop down trees, you have no idea how difficult it is. Try it sometime. You know, the first day you could maybe spend about an hour or two at it, but you feel it like each time the axe hits the thing, your whole body shakes. And by the next day, the first time you hit the tree, it already just, you go, ouch, because from yesterday's thing, how they could do it day after day, I have no idea. It's the most difficult thing in the world. They have electric saws, that's right. Yeah, that's what they do now. No, but I'm talking about the old, 
150 pounds also makes a difference. No, but some of those lumberjacks aren't even that. I understand now why they eat, you know, 30 pancakes full of syrup in one sitting. But, Lamaisa, I mean, it's, it's, it's. Now go take that lumberjack, take that schlepper boy, you guys have, I even asked them, I just marveled at them. And they got up, remember, they came to me at 7 in the morning, and they had to do it all in one day, and they went to 11, 12 at night. It's grueling, it's unbelievable. And tomorrow you're going to wake up and do it again? These guys are supermen. Okay, let's take out an Aravin. You could put in 16 hours, they schlepping packages. I know I couldn't. Let's see how long you could learn Aravin for. After about an hour or two, they give up. What is it? It's strength? I mean, what is it? It depends how you view it. That's what it is. You give it up after five. I'm saying even people like Luke, can you imagine doing the daf all day? I mean, you, you, your head comes out swimming. Then you do it the next day. So where does the power come from? It comes from this will. And once you have it, it becomes gishmak. Therefore, you have to understand. Tairas Hashem Tanima. The Torah is considered that those that toil in Torah find a sweetness in it. And if a person is able to taste that taste, he will not feel tired. If you could appreciate the mesikus of Torah, the beauty and the sweetness of Torah, you will not be weakened. You won't feel fatigue. If you see that you're tired and fatigued, it's because you haven't yet felt that sweetness. And therefore it's a riot that you lack still that desire. For that reason we daven every single day. We say in the prayers in the morning. What do we say in Birch Zatara? Close, close, that's the Pasik. What's the Pasik that everybody says in the morning? Birch Zatara? Vaharev. As Divei Saroscha. The finu v'yam chobes Yisrael, right? The very first bracha, baharevno, make pleasant, make sweet. Hashem elkein is devei sarascha b'finu in our mouths and in the mouths of your nation Israel, so that we and our children and grandchildren should be able to know your name and learn Torah lishma. So we have to pray, pray to make Torah sweet, because then, that's what it says, loyro amal Israel. That's what Bilam was saying over here. Lo he bit oven biyakov v'loro omol biyisroel. He didn't see weakness and fatigue of Torah in Yisroel. Why is there no amal? Because this was their appreciation of Torah. Their appreciation of Torah was on such a level. There's no ayefus. There's no weakness because it's a recognition that it's life, and then it becomes enjoyable, and it's not tiring. I saw a beautiful insight which I once said over one half of the coin but I appreciate it now much better from the Alshech because he says another side of the coin turn the page turn the page the Alshech in the upper left Zok the Alshech the Mishnah says in Pirkei Ovis, also famous Mishnah in Pirkei Ovis, most of you are probably familiar with this. 
What? You wouldn't want a bet. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe what's not bet. It says, Yosi ben Yoyezer is trader. Yosi ben Yechnish is shlaim. Kibul mehem. Yosi ben Yoyezer is trader. He beis chov beis vav lechachomen. Your house should be a meeting place for sages. In other words, every single person in this room should open up his house the way Eddie Chernoff opens up his house. For sure, you should have sure in your house. And roll in the dust of their feet. And with great thirst, drink greedily and thirstily their words. So I once told you over from Rav Hutner. Rav Hutner says a famous word on this. Not a famous word, he says a word on this. What does it mean, drink with thirst their words? What does it mean with thirst? And we explained based on a Gemara in Brachas. Those Dafiomi people that learn Brachas will remember this. You see, by the way, why it's so important to learn Gemara to better appreciate the Agoda parts of the Torah as well. I always said this and it was always hard to comprehend. Why is it that you can't learn just the ethical, moral parts, the Agodic parts, the inspirational parts? What do you got to learn technical stuff for that? The Torah is all one complete whole. And when you expand your mind in one area, you automatically expand it in the other. The Gemara says in Brachas that water, unlike other beverages, you only make a bracha on if you're thirsty. Whenever I take a pill, the halacha is if you take a pill with water, you don't make a bracha. If you take it with a beverage, you do make a bracha. Why? Because you enjoy all beverages in and of themselves, whether you're thirsty or not. This is what nowadays some people call social drinking. You're not thirsty, you're doing it for other reasons. You don't have to be thirsty to enjoy drink. You have to be thirsty to enjoy water. If you're not thirsty, water is not enjoyable. If you are thirsty, water is very enjoyable. In fact, the person that's really, really thirsty and you come out of a desert, you come out of thirst, hot day, and you give them some cool, refreshing water, it's mechai and nefesh, it refreshes the soul, and it's extremely enjoyable. What? And on that you make a brach. Water, you only make a brach when you're thirsty. The way to approach chazal and words of Torah is that Torah is compared to water. Torah we see is constantly compared to water. Why is it compared to water? Because like water, unless you drink it with thirst, you can't really appreciate it. You have to, you can only make a brach on it. If it's vaharev, only if you really appreciate Torah, if you drink it with thirst, then it's b'chayi nefesh. If you don't thirst for it, it's, it doesn't do it. If you don't thirst for Torah, it's not going to quite do it. If you thirst for it, it quenches. If you don't... But now comes the al and he says practically the same thing, but says shows the other side of the coin. And this will put everything that we said today together. Sok the al Namely, 
Don't approach Chazal or Torah like someone who lacks thirst for water. And therefore, see this is the other side of the coin, you will drink it because it's sweet. In other words, there are many people that kids do it all the time. They see you drinking, oh, give me some soda. You're thirsty, you want soda? Nah, forget it. <laughs> In other words, they're not really thirsting for it. If they're not thirsty, they just want something sweet. Don't approach Torah that you'll only drink it when it's sweet. This is the other side of the coin, the don't. Do not approach Torah that if you find sweet water, in other words, a person that's not thirsty, and if he finds my misukim, he will drink it because it's pleasurable. But rather drink it with thirst. Give me water, why? To give me life. It's a machayim meishim nefesh. Ulohoshim nefesh. Kain tishtad divrei that's the way you should approach the Vechachonen. Ki chaim heim levim Because it's a real Machayim. Of course, the other part goes with it as well. Because it's a Machayim, it becomes a Machayim. Right? A Machayim. What does it mean a Machayim? Ooh, it's really enjoyable. It's a different enjoyment. It gives you chiyus. If it gives you life, it's extremely pleasurable and enjoyable. Something that gives life, gives joy and pleasure. That's what we said earlier. Remember I once explained the Medrash, not the Medrash, the Gemara and Erevin we just learned. Right? Right? Last week's, last week's daf. The Torah, and we talked about it last week from the standpoint of the Mon. The Mon had all the flavors. So it says that the Torah is compared to the breast of a woman that gives milk to the child and the child nurses and whenever the child nurses it gets nourishment likewise the Torah always gives you nourishment but I pointed out a few other aspects to it that like like the woman's breast that nourishes and nurses a child the child never tires of it the child never says same old milk the child always thirstily and greedily because this is its only nourishment, this is its life and therefore it always, it's necessary for the child and it's enjoyable to the child. And there's always something there to nourish it and it lives from it. Because it's life, it's also it's pleasure and enjoyment. The child knows from nothing else, doesn't know about food, doesn't know about anything. When the infant is born and needs breast milk, that's its greatest pleasure. The fish in the sea, since water is their life, new water is a machayan. Says Rabbi Akiva, we're like fish in the sea. Torah to us is the element of life. If it's the element of life, I don't question it. But not only that, now I enjoy it also. It becomes enjoyable once it's necessary for life. That's why Torah is compared to water. And that's what the fisherman was told by, by Eliyahu Navi. For your livelihood, you don't question it. The only reason why you question Torah is because you don't view it as life. 
if you view it as life, you will not question it. But more than that, not only will you not question it, you will actually enjoy it. There's no amelus. There's no fatigue. Don't approach Torah like optional beverage. Something that, if it's sweet, I enjoy. Realize that it's life. If you realize that it's life, you drink it on account of thirst. If you drink it on account of thirst, you'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it also. Torah will then become automatically enjoyable because it's necessary for life. Don't think that you're only listening to the words of the sages. You're listening to the words of life itself that Hashem is telling you. Therefore you should do everything that the sages say. Therefore have The same way you drink water with thirst because it gives life. Therefore you should likewise desire to hear in order to live to give your life to give you life because the words of Chazal the words of the Torah are life itself but there's what I saw from this Alshech was a whole new different understanding also there is a tendency that people have out there that they'll only take the words of the Torah that are pleasant and sweet to them Torah becomes a beverage it's not water and therefore they'll only take the parts of the Torah that are pleasant and sweet. Why do they do that? Because Torah is optional. Torah isn't life. Torah is pleasant, it's sweet, it's enjoyable, it's a beverage. They'll only take the words of the Torah that are pleasant and sweet. But if you realize that the Torah is life itself, I mean a person that's thirsty and needs water doesn't think, well, it tastes good, doesn't You need the water. It's life, it's air. Papas ben Yehuda tells, tells Rabbi Akiva, it doesn't make sense what you're doing. He says, what do you mean make sense? doesn't make sense. I'm a fish in water. This is my element. I don't have the choice. I don't have the option. A fish needs water. I need Torah the same way. So it's not a question of, I'll only do it when it's convenient. I'll only do it when it's pleasant. What did we just learn? Again, another Gemara in Arab, and we just learned it a couple days ago. A person shouldn't say, Shmu Zunah. Says, a person that says this yeah and this not he only pastures where it's sweet and pleasant right? we just learned that Gemara a person shouldn't say I'll only take the parts of the Torah that are pleasant and sweet that's what we also see from the Alshech don't just take the parts of the Torah that are pleasant and sweet because it shows a whole wrong attitude to what Torah is that's what the fisherman told Eliyahu Navi. He tells Eliyahu Navi, I don't have the head for it. I don't have the head. I can't learn Torah. And Eliyahu Navi's answer, as the Kotzker explains it, wasn't that you do have the head for it. You're right, you don't have the head for it. But you don't question that you have the head for making a living. You have to make a living. Gebzechaneitzah, right? You gotta do it, you gotta do it. Gebzechaneitzah. If you view Torah the same way, what do you mean I don't have the head for it? The fact that you use that excuse shows a misconception of what Torah is. If Torah is like life, like a livelihood, if it's then you don't question anymore 
whether you could or whether you can't or whether you have the head for it or whether it's enjoyable and but the key to the deal is that then it also becomes enjoyable because water when you're thirsty is enjoyable there's no amelus says the Archaim by Klal Yisrael there's no amelus because it's enjoyable that's the site of the Archaim that once you view it with the right attitude it's a beautiful shot in Reish Lakish. Why did he couldn't cross, jump back? So the Velt says, once already he took the oil tar, it's already Matesh's Koycha. He says, a beautiful shot in Dark Musser. He says, it didn't mean so much to him anymore. He, he could have physically still could have crossed it, because I mean, it wasn't Matesh's yet. But till now, this is what meant the most thing to him. He was a highwayman, he was a robber, he's going to jump across. Also, you know, something else is more important in life now. Now, tar is more important. It doesn't make it across anymore. He doesn't have that same zeal. If Torah means that you have the kaychas, there's no amelus. Why is there no amelus? Because if you understand that Torah is have a as so there's no amelus. You make a brach on it. It's enjoyable. It's like you have the head for it. You don't have to worry. You schwitz away in Erevin and it sends you reeling. It doesn't send you reeling then. Because First of all, you got to do it. You don't question. You don't question. You got to do it. There's no such thing as shmuzu no, shmuzu ain't not this gemara yeah, this gemara not. Have a choice of the as devarim says the alshich. You don't pick and choose when you're thirsty. This water yeah, I only drink Perrier. Can you imagine? Guy comes out of the desert. Oh, what kind? Poland Springs? No, no. I only drink sparkling water, not the other kind. I mean, you're thirsty. You need the water. You don't question which water you drink. You need it. And it's Gishmak also. It's Gishmak anyway. So those are the two lessons. The one Andrew Putner says one part of it. Yeah, the bracha. But the Alshach says the other part of it also. Which is that you can't pick and choose. Tyre is not something that you pick and choose. That you only take the sweet parts. You make a bracha on it. It's water and you need it for life. And it'll be Gishmak. The Sefer Beis Yitzchok in the name of the Beis HaLevi asks the following question. Why was Bullock angry at Bilam? Bullock seems very upset with Bilam. He criticizes him. He says, listen, I called you to curse my enemies and you're blessing them time and time again. What was exactly Bullock's wrath at Bilam? After all, didn't Bilam right away tell him, Bilam right away goes and tells Bullock straight off the bat, that the deal is he could only say what Hashem tells him to say. He says, I can't do anymore. Can I speak anything that which Hashem doesn't tell me? So Bilam initially told Bolok that he will only be able to curse them if Hashem gives him permission. And therefore he never made a guarantee. Bilam didn't make no guarantees to Bolok. And therefore he says he has no way of knowing if he'll ever be given permission by Hashem to curse. So what was Bullock's fury at Bilam. The Tarot says the Beis Yitzchok in the name of the Beis Alevi is that when a person says, Lo ucha I cannot do this, there are two ways of understanding that statement. And it has to be understood in context. If someone goes over to someone else and offers him a large sum of money and says, I want you to slap this person in the face publicly. And he says, I can't. I just can't do it. If you go over to somebody else, and you say to him, 
you know what, I'll give you this large sum of money, I want you to build a wall around the city overnight. The person says, I'm sorry, I just can't do it. The two I can't are different. Although they both use the same expression, I cannot, but it means something totally different. In the first case, the person says, I can't slap him. He certainly could. He's physically capable of doing it. He just feels so much against his grain that it's as if he can't, and he just won't. He doesn't want to do it, or he feels that he can't do it, but he could do it physically. He just feels as if he can't. In the second case, he physically cannot. In the first case, it's not that he physically cannot, it's just that his mind and his seichel tells him that it's just so wrong and it's just such a reprehensible thing that it's as if he can't. It just doesn't let him do it. In the second case, he actually cannot. What's the difference between the two I cannot? The difference is if you keep raising the price of the, the money. If you keep raising the price, eventually the first person will say yes I can and the second person no matter what you're going to offer him he cannot they say it as a joke but there's the same element of truth in this joke a man goes over to a woman and he, and he propositions her for a certain amount of money he says to her he says listen with thirty dollars would you be willing to have relations and she says what kind of a person do you think I am and he says okay you know what for a million dollars can we do it and he says, a million dollars? That's a different story. So he says, okay, we've already established what kind of a person you are. We're only haggling over the price. There's an expression that's used, everybody has a price. Keep raising it. You keep upping the ante, you keep raising it, eventually you'll find the mark, you'll find the price where the person would do that which he previously said, I can't. In the second case, of course, no matter what sum of money you're going to offer him, there's just no way he's physically capable of building a wall around the city in one night. There's a price by which you could finally convince someone to slap someone across the face. This then was the difference between the, the dialogue between Bullock's understanding and Billam's understanding. When Billam said to Bullock, I can't curse the people unless Hashem lets me, to Bullock's mind, the word I can't means depending on the price. It meant to Bullock that Bilam is unwilling to go against God. He's unwilling to go against HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Hashem doesn't want him to curse it. Bilam is unwilling to go against the wishes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and curse the Jews. But if you keep upping the ante, if you keep offering enough enough, eventually Bilam will be willing to go against Hashem. Therefore, that's why Bolak didn't give up. Bilam comes to him and he says, I can't. And Bollock says, well, let's try it anyway. And it doesn't work one time, doesn't work two times. He tries three times. Why does he keep trying if, if, if Hashem doesn't want Bilam to change and to curse the Jewish people? Why does Bollock keep trying? Does he think that he's going to change Hashem's mind? Terence is in the mind of Bollock. It was up to Bilam if he so chooses to either try to manipulate the divine or to go against HaKadosh Baruch Hu's wishes, but if he could convince Bilam and he could seduce him and persuade him to go against Hashem, maybe he will still curse the Jews and maybe it will be effective. For that reason, Bolok never gave up hope to the fact that maybe he could induce Bilam somehow to curse the Jews. The reason was because as we've described Bilam earlier, 
as this degenerate person with degenerate characteristics, Bolak knew this. Bolak knew that Dilam had a price. Like the woman, he says, I know what kind of a person you are. We're merely haggling over the price. I know precisely what kind of a person you are. You're the equivalent of a moral prostitute. You'd be willing to do anything and you'd prostitute yourself for something that's beneficial to you because you have an insatiable appetite and you have tremendous greed. And if I could appeal to your appetite and to your greed, I'll get through to you. He knew Bilam's character very well. He understood how to get to Bilam. He understood what, uh, what made Bilam tick. He knew he could eventually get through. He understood Bilam very well. And he knew that a person with such insatiable greed and appetite and haughtiness and arrogance, you could find his price, push the right buttons, and get him to do it if you could appeal to him. Therefore, he just kept offering him more and more and upping the offer until he felt he'll finally be able to persuade him. Until finally he reaches the point of where, whereas he was saying, till now, I cannot, he'll say, but I'll do it anyway. I can. For that reason, Bolak became angry at Bilam because he saw that Bilam still kept refusing and he thought that the refusal of Bilam and the I can't of Bilam was merely an I won't. And he says, what do you think? I can't pay your price? Tell me your price. I could match it. Bilam then responded to him. When I said I can't, I really meant that I physically can't. I'm really incapable of doing that which Hashem does not let me do. You thought that when I said I can't, it means that for the right price I can, and it's my own free will that determines whether I will or not. That's not the case. You thought you could persuade me that you could somehow induce me with enough blandishments to do it? To that, Bilam responds, I cannot. I'm incapable of doing it. The Emes, I can't. That's what Rashi means when he brings down that the Gemara says, What is the Dovor? A chika, a hook, a harness. That Hashem physically didn't let Bilam make the cursing. And therefore, when Bilam says, Lo ucha lavoras pi Hashem, the reason is because Vayosem Hashem dovar befi Bilam. He puts something in his mouth, so to speak, kaviyochel. It's as if he physically restrained him and constrained him from cursing and forcing him to bless, whether he liked it or not. This then was the lesson of the talking donkey to Bilam. The same way that a donkey doesn't really talk, and a donkey is incapable of talking by itself. But if Hashem puts something into the mouth of the donkey, the donkey will talk. But it's not the donkey talking, it's Hashem and the Mawach talking through the donkey. Hashem was saying to Bilam, you're no more than a donkey. Ultimately, you're going to do as I wish, and you're going to be restrained and constrained like the donkey, and you will not curse when I don't want you, and you will bless when I want you to. This is what Bilam told Bolok. Ultimately, Bilam had to admit to Bolok, I'm nothing more than the donkey. All I am is a talking donkey. I bless the Jews because Hashem wants me to. I'm nothing more than a talking donkey. But we see from this a similar lesson to what we said earlier. Bolok understood this nature in Bilam. And he understood that if a person really wants to, you can do it. It's just that you don't want to. If you really want to, you could. And when a person says that I can't, it doesn't always mean that I can't. It means I don't want to. 
pay a sufficient price and the I can't becomes an I can and the I won't will become an I will. Everything is dependent on that will. Everything is dependent on Rotson. Hakol Toloi Barotson, everything is dependent on the will. If a person has the proper recognition and the understanding, if you see things clearly, you'll develop the will. If you have the will, then Vilna, you'll be a going. Ein Dover Oimid Nothing stands in the way of will.